Welcome to Politics in Question, the show where we talk about our failing political institutions and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. Well, we are well into the primary season, and it's certainly been an eventful one. And as with always in U.S. politics these days, primary reform is a hot topic. Are our primaries broken? Should we fix them? Uh, If so, how? Uh, Alaska is having its first go-around with its new top four plus ranked choice voting primary. Uh, Nevada is going to be voting this November on whether they want to follow Alaska. And certainly lots of folks blame primary elections as a primary problem with our divisive hyper-polarized politics. So today we are going to tackle the topic of primary reform, and our special guest is Matthew Germer, a fellow with the governance program at the R Street Institute and the author of a new R Street policy study, America's Primary Elections Are Ripe for Reform. So welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's get right to it. What's, what's so bad about our primary system? Why, why does everybody want to change it? Yeah, so thank you for asking that. It's a great question, and it seems to be on the minds of voters across the country. You know, first, I guess I should note that uh, primary elections are varied across the country, and we might be thinking, you know, if you close your eyes and think of a primary election, you might be thinking of the presidential primary, which is a very unique process we have in our country. Um, but this time of year, in a year like 2022, Uh, The primary election is looking at legislative seats and statewide offices, and that process is dramatically different across the country. But one thing that is largely uh, existent is a set of negative incentives that get created for our politicians and elected officials as a result of our primary process. In a number of states, primary elections are only available to partisan voters who have to pick a party to belong to before they can participate. And so the politicians have incentives to appeal to a majority of those partisans. And as you work your way through the system and you ask what appeals to a majority of Republicans or a majority of Democrats or a majority perhaps of a third party, uh, it becomes apparent pretty quickly that that may not be the same issues and policy uh, preferences that would exist to a majority of the population of that district or of that state. Uh, And at the end of the day, these incentives, the primary elections that uh, that create these incentives, encourage politicians to prioritize a narrow uh, agenda, one that that only really appeals to the uh, most partisan base voters. And that isn't great for our politics, and it leads to a lot of dissatisfaction. And it's why it's perhaps not surprising that only 35 percent of voters think that primary elections are a good way of determining the best qualified nominees. So I think one place to kind of back up on this conversation and think more broadly is with the history of primary elections. I think a lot of people might not understand the fact that we we didn't always have primary elections for Congress. In fact, before the early 20th century, there, there was a very different system by which parties chose their nominees, which is basically they had some form of private convention in which they selected their candidates, and then voters got to choose the candidates that the parties had pre-selected. And, you know, for a lot of folks who think that 
parties are too weak in the U.S. because they don't control the candidates who represent the political parties. This choice to uh, kind of end that closed primary system is seen as a misstep. So you've written a little bit in this paper about the history of why we moved away from that system. What were the problems with that old system? What was in the minds of reformers at the time? And and why did it happen? Why did parties give up that power? That's a great question. And, And it really goes back to the founding of our country or just shortly after. Folks who are familiar with George Washington's famous farewell address may remember his warnings against uh, breaking apart into factions uh, and and the kind of negative politics that factions can create. But almost immediately after he made this speech, uh, we saw the rise of party politics. Uh, In particular, I think it was even Thomas Jefferson's anti-federalist movement became the what they called the Republican Party, then the Democratic Republican Party, then later the Democratic Party started as soon as Washington was was leaving office. And these party coalitions were designed to find candidates and to elect an entire group of people who uh, shared certain policy preferences. That system, which is almost inevitable, humans trying to band together in order to elect somebody, almost necessitates some sort of overarching uh, organization to help organize those voters. But uh, the party politics that existed resulted in some pretty arcane voting practices that were put in place. That included things like voice votes. Uh, everybody would gather together in the jurisdiction and, you know, acclaim by I or nay who they prefer to win an office. And uh, we didn't have secret ballots. We didn't have uh, a lot of the election practices we are used to today, including primaries. Uh, as you mentioned early on in the process, um, parties used conventions as a way to, in some sense, democratize um, the process of who is on the ballot by extending all party members or or some subset of party members the opportunity to provide feedback. That turned out to, again, not really feel like enough involvement for most voters. And as uh, voters became more familiar with voting, more people began to participate, uh, both in terms of percentage, but also just as, as raw numbers, as more people became eligible to vote and participate Uh, the importance of the franchise as that grew, more people wanted to participate at all stages of the process. And so early in the 20th century, some progressive era reformers uh, decided that uh, they would listen to some of the the clamoring happening at the the ground level uh, and supported uh, party primaries to publicly elect who would represent that party. Uh, Now, granted, it was only open to party members who could participate in in these primaries, Um, So they were fully closed primaries in the way that we use that term today. Uh, Probably my favorite story is how it came to be in Wisconsin. Governor LaFollette there put forward a a referendum, which was another progressive era reform, and asked for folks to support uh, party primaries. And they did. The result of that election was that his preferred uh, candidate to replace him as governor was not selected in the primary by the voters. And instead, they picked someone else. Uh, almost immediately showing that party bosses were losing levels of influence. Over the next few decades, as progressive reforms extended out across uh, beyond just the upper Midwest, but throughout the country, particularly on the West Coast and and other progressive havens, we saw majorities of states begin to adopt primary elections. And these days, now every state largely uses primary elections to to one extent or another or has used primary elections. And it's, uh, it's at a point where the primary elections have grown and developed and uh, matured such that they, they're they not necessarily even reflective of that initial primary process where it was only closed elections available only to partisan voters. Uh, these days, a number of states have 
uh, have grown further to allow for nonpartisan voters to participate or even to put all candidates onto a single blanket ballot, uh, allowing for voters of all parties to pick their favorite candidate among uh, all candidates. And for, as you mentioned, Alaska being an example of a state that has done just that, they now have a primary election where all candidates are placed on one ballot. The top four uh, vote getters move on to the general election, uh, at which point they'll use ranked choice voting to select uh, the ultimate winner. Uh, but Alaska is not alone on this. Washington State, California, both use blanket uh, primary elections. Um, and then the top two move on to the general election. And then we have states that are a bit unique. You've got states like Nebraska, where they don't really even have parties. Their state legislature is a nonpartisan body. And so there isn't a partisan primary function uh, to exist in a state like that. Or you've got uh, Louisiana, which is, you know, one of my favorite states as far as, you know, is how early on they were, they adopted this idea of removing partisan primary elections and instead just put everyone on the ballot uh, in November. And if, if need be, they'll have a runoff election uh, after that. So I've been kind of thinking about this primaries question a lot, because it seems like in the last five years or so, maybe the last seven years, um, since the round of 2016 primaries, that there's been a lot of noise about whether this system is working. And it seems to me that it's usually couched in the language that you used about divisions. And this has a lot in common with this sort of discourse around the problem in American politics leading up to that point, that the real problem is polarization, we're too divided, that's the threat. And, you know, it's not clear to me that that's true. Um, that division is the division is the real the main threat to American politics, which is not to say we're not we're not divided. But the real threat, the real problem, I've been thinking about this ever since Joanne Freeman had said this on on Twitter, the historian, that we should think about democracy in terms of kind of the concentration or or spreading out of power. And I've been thinking about you know how do we how does the set of questions we ask about the nomination process change if what is most important to us is distributing power. And is there empirical evidence that suggests a connection between this divisiveness point that you're making and the sort of, there are people who really want to concentrate power in the hands of, of a very small number of people, people who are determined to evade democratic accountability and you know what role do primaries play in that in that process i'm i'm unclear i mean i think the common argument is the primaries give very like you said the sort of base factions within the two parties it sort of empowers them but it seems to me like that like i'm not satisfied with that answer it seems like it's it's pretty asymmetrical in terms of which factions across the two parties are doing things to actually concentrate power um the left wing of the democratic party may have positions that a lot of people don't agree with but they don't seem to be trying to move to you know eliminate electoral democracy the right wing of the republican party is has been sort of shot through with these more extreme groups so I'm not clear. I guess I'm just not clear on this question of if, if we if we shift our focus about what the real threat to American democracy is, where do where does nomination politics sit into that? How do we create a nomination system that really kind of distributes power broadly across different groups in, in American society and, and creates accountability? That's a great question. And, and as I as you asked it, my brain immediately went to um, this image of distributing power and thinking of empowering voters as much as possible. And it is possible to then empower like voters to pick the president. Now, 
then there becomes to me this different question of distribution of power when you ask how much power then should the president have versus other levels of government. And I think this is one of those tensions between uh, what might be thought of as kind of traditional right and traditional left wing of, of American politics. And, and I'll note for just a moment that what is meant to be both traditionally right and left has changed over time and is still in a period of flux. But that uh, one thing I have noticed is a stronger willingness among the left to empower individuals to select folks for office, but that once people are picked for office, there has been a trend toward an amalgamation of power for those offices, particularly among an executive. And it's it's my view, at least, that uh, I think a lot of folks within uh, the left wing of, of American politics would be comfortable with the parliamentary style system where you pick your party and then they pick a prime minister. And then that prime minister can largely just accomplish their objectives without the balances of power or check on power. And my evidence for this is the number of folks who tend to run for democratic office saying on day one, I will do X, Y, and Z as president. Uh, when X, Y, and Z is something that is going to require Congress's input on. It's not something they can accomplish on day one, but they could if they were a prime minister. Separately, I would say within the kind of right wing of politics, there is a deference to the institutions and to uh, things that aren't necessarily democratic, whether that's the electoral college or you know, looking back even to the direct election of senators, that there's a movement, not a huge movement, but there's a movement within the right wing that that laments the 17th Amendment and, and says we shouldn't we shouldn't have a direct election of senators because there is a specific role for senators to represent the states. And that's a, that would be an anti-democratic move in a small D sense, but it would also represent a greater balance of power among elected officials and among branches. And so instead of having a centralized authoritarian view, although again, I mentioned that the right wing has been moving in that direction uh, to some extent, but that I think when we think about the way to democratize the country, it needs to be on a couple of axes. It's both empowering individuals, but then asking what is it that you're electing people to do and what power, how much power of that power is then centralized into figures. This is a bit different than the primary problem question, but I do think it's relevant to the answer. I guess to answer this question of then how do we, how do we incentivize good nominees that are enabling voters, this is where ideas, hopefully, like Alaska's final four system that they're running through now, uh, can help provide some great empirical evidence on this front. Uh, we know that, that in Alaska, candidates like Lisa Murkowski have been able to survive in previous electoral cycles. She tends to be a more moderate Republican. There might be folks out there who quibble with such an idea existing as a moderate Republican, but within the context of her party, she represents a, a moderate. And her re-election would have been likely very tough this year without a final four uh, system in place. Her uh, opposition from within the base of her own party was likely to be very strong and could have resulted in her getting bounced in the primary election. Under this new system, it's still, I guess, to be determined whether or not she can she can be reelected. But if she is, I think it's fair to note that she might represent something closer to the median voter, the majority of Alaskans. And if she ends up coming out on top, you know, I, I would see that as an example of the way that the primary process functions, directly impacting the kind of representation that uh, a jurisdiction receives. And it ultimately, even I guess if she doesn't win, the fact that the structure was set up this way that says what kind of candidate can receive broad support from voters in a jurisdiction uh, would indicate that whoever comes out of this election uh, represents what it is that Alaskans are looking for to represent them in Washington. I think we're getting to a really interesting point in this conversation where we're trying to distinguish what is the purpose of the the electoral system and 
we're talking about voters broadly, but if I look at the electorate in Alaska, I see a very split electorate, probably in, into a bunch of different camps. And, you know, there is some share of Alaskans who are pretty, pretty far right. There's some share of Alaskans who are Democrats, some share of Alaskans who are maybe, you know, moderate Republicans. And so maybe Lisa Murkowski represents the moderate Republicans, but she's not really the preferred candidate of the Kelly Shabaka Republicans. She's not really the preferred candidate of the Democrats. So she's sort of like the least bad option for most of Alaska. So there's this question of, is it possible for one person to represent this, you know, what's, what's quite a diverse state politically? And, you know, I mean, for whatever reason, you know, we have one senator, you know, really two senators per state, but only one senator elected at a time. Maybe we should think about electing two senators simultaneously so that maybe we could move towards more representing the diversity of a state. But this gets to this broader problem with the voters are not one thing, right? I mean, we talk about the median voter as some sort of idealized sense, but the median voter is like, I mean, I, I think it's a total fiction, but if you have a bimodal distribution or an electorate that's split into lots of different groups, like, like, why do we think that just one person should represent a, a single, you know, a single state or a single electoral district that's much more diverse? That seems to me a really core problem and confusion here. And second is, is this question of political parties. So what we have as we move towards a more open primary system in which we go from a closed primary to an open primary to a blanket primary is increasingly cutting political parties out of the process entirely. So, Matthew, in your, in your paper, you talk about the primary as now a winnowing process. But who decides who enters in the first place, right? So in the historical uh, development of, of the U.S., we had political parties, and political parties were, were networks of, of you know, all kinds of actors who got together and said, you know, a, a Democratic candidate is going to have these qualities and we're going to have this level of quality control, stand for these positions, have these qualifications, this consistency. Now, under this top five, top four primary, under the blanket primary, any, I can show up and say, you know what, I'm a Republican. And if it, I, I'm going to identify with a Republican. So what does it even mean to have political parties in this moment. So, I mean, I guess I've really asked two questions here, which is, is it, does it even make sense to think of one person as representing, you know, the state of Alaska or, you know, any congressional district, which I, I would say no, because the median voter to me is a fiction and there's much more diversity. And like, what is the role for parties? Because somebody has to select and nominate and do quality control for candidate. And what I worry about under this this new, you know, Alaska system, uh, final five, all these blanket primaries is we have political parties and yet they don't do any of the things that political parties are supposed to do. I want to just add that I think I think that's right. And I think that creates a sort of, since Lee is such a, a fan of doom loops, I think it creates kind of a vicious cycle of illegitimacy around parties. It's like, they don't really do anything, and so people are frustrated with them, and then that makes that undercuts their ability to do anything. Those are both great questions. And if I can address, I guess, multi-member districts is the first one. I will say, personally, I'm intrigued by the idea of multi-member districts. 
I don't know that America is ready for it because it feels very foreign to our system. Well, actually, we, we had multi-member districts for the first 50 years of U.S. history. So it's not at all foreign. At this point, it feels no foreign. No one remembers that. Um, even things like ranked choice voting, which does exist in a variety of jurisdictions, is still very, very foreign to a variety of voters. And it, it, there's a, a natural suspicion that has, has developed in politics uh, because we have a lack of trust in our system. And folks, when they hear, hey, I've got this idea for a reform, they're immediately thinking, what are you trying to pull over me? You know, what are we trying to get away with and advantage your side against my side? It's unhealthy. There are a variety of reasons for it, which we could go into. But I will say personally, I'm intrigued by multi-member districts. I think they have a lot to offer, but I don't know if we are quite as ready for them or if they're uh, as available as a potential solution as ideas like top four. So top four or top five, final five. Well, well, those are, I mean, top four, top five. I mean, that's like totally out of nowhere. Like like, like we've never seen anything like that. I mean, you, you want to talk out of the pale. I mean, at least multi-member districts have been around one in the U.S. for you know, for a long time, including in some states, and the Senate is multi-member districts. And two, they've been using democracies around the world for quite a while. So we know they work, whereas this top four, top five blanket primary thing, I mean, that's like a whole cloth invention that, that we've never seen before. So that seems to me the more radical beyond the pale thing, to be honest. Perhaps in the context of elections globally, but at least within the U.S., we've got states like California and Washington that are basically one step away from having a, a top yeah, but four or five. Those, are, they, those have been radical. And and I mean, also to the to the point, like having looked at California and Washington, the evidence there, there's no evidence that those systems have elected more moderate candidates. I mean, the, the, the systems have largely, I think those reforms have largely made no difference other than that they've confused voters tremendously. And, and left a number of folks dissatisfied by the results when, you know, up to 45 or more percent of the electorate might feel like no one on the general election ballot even comes close to their yeah. own viewpoint. I, I grew up in California. I spent four years working in Washington politics. So for me, this is a very personal subject of uh, how those top two systems work. And I can think back to the 2016 election in Washington. Uh, the Democrats in the primary split their vote among candidates and two Republicans ended up coming on to the general election ballot in a blue leaning state. So a majority of the state felt like nobody that was on the ballot for that particular office was close to their viewpoint and a Republican won and held the office for four years. Uh, so yeah, they, top two, I've got, I've got major problems with. I think it was an attempt at a solution, but it was ham-fisted. I think top five or top four helps to ameliorate the problems created by top two. But that said, if, if, if there are you know, jurisdictions out there interested in multi-member districts, I would encourage them to, to carry forward with that because I would love to see how that plays out in American politics. I think it could be another healthy opportunity out there. I guess to the other question of why even have parties, like what, what purpose are they serving in this new version of politics? And I guess I would answer that um, in a couple of directions. One is, is from a pragmatic point of view, we are seeing voters largely leaving parties. They, they, people in America, for one reason or another, we've got kind of a pioneer spirit to a lot of our uh, culture and people don't want to necessarily belong. This is a big problem on a variety of institutions. Uh, we have institutions declining across the board, political parties being one of them. I lament that decline. I don't think it's necessarily a healthy thing for our democracy, for not just political parties to be losing their influence, but for institutions, you know, whether it's corporations or churches or just trust in government or uh, civic organizations, all of these things are seeing a decline in trust and a decline in participation. And it's impacting, a, you know, kind of all the way back to the bowling alone 
uh, theory at the end of the 90s. But I will say as far as political parties, what function do they serve? You know, we are already starting to see what function they are serving, which is to function as a signal for voters to the point of Alaska or Washington or California, where we have these blanket primaries and folks write down, I, you know, prefer the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Uh, We are seeing candidates become even creative in what they're saying they prefer. In in Washington state, we've had candidates who write down not that they prefer Republican or Democrat, but that they they prefer Trump Republican or they prefer the low taxes party or they use them as signaling mechanisms. Is that the best use of a party? No. Is it even really a party at that point? No. But it is at least uh, a fun- a way to tell to inform voters about what a candidate might prefer uh, or go- how they might govern, which is at this in this point for a lot of people, all the party serves to do is say, you know, are you largely aligned with this vision or largely aligned with this vision? Because even within the parties themselves, we've got divisions. I think back to um, the, the fact that the Republican Party right now is trying to figure out what it wants to be. You've got Donald Trump and and the Make America Great Again movement, I don't know that it was necessarily the cause of all of these things, but it absolutely was, if not a catalyst, just then the the outcome of the divisions that have existed within the Republican Party and continue to exist in the Republican Party. And I think to uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in an interview saying that she can't understand how it is that she belongs to the same party as someone like Joe Manchin. Uh, So we have tensions even within the parties themselves. And historically, strong parties have helped to smooth out those tensions. The strong party has a view for the brand. They want to win elections and they want the brand to continue. Uh, And as our parties have declined, so has that ability to carry out that mission. As I was looking at it, at least in the paper, I was trying to take America as it is in the moment where our parties are in a state of decline, where folks don't want to belong to them, where we're seeing uh, weak parties unable to rein in some of their own extremist members uh, and, and chastise and discipline folks when they step out of line. And therefore, as I saw it, things like the Alaska model offer some promise for resolving some of our problems. That said, if if there are opportunities to make parties and party officials who have a larger, bigger picture view and a longer term view, I think that can also be healthy as well. Uh, But at this moment, I'm not seeing the reform on the table that would help get us there that the public would be willing to support. Uh, I think we have a gap in what the public would be willing to do. Yeah, that's the idea of what the public is willing to sustain, I think, is really an important one. I have an observation. This might be more of a comment than a question, but maybe this can help us wrap up. I've been thinking about this because, like, yesterday, I live in Wisconsin, and there was the the Democratic Senate primary debate. And it was, you know, one of the things that was apparent to me is that even though this is a pretty competitive state, there are some interesting debates going on in the Democratic Party right now about what direction it's going to go. And none of those debates are really playing out in that primary. It really is the main three people, um, the kind of people who are polling the top three in the polls, are all taking very similar positions. They're all aligning themselves with our other Senator, Tammy Baldwin, who's quite progressive, um, and kind of taught, it's, it's been, I think, as primaries go pretty gentle, but it's really kind of about like who can demonstrate the most authenticity on these topics, who can demonstrate you know, the most relevant experience, which is which is somewhat relevant to the, the people that are running. You know, and I think that's important. I think some of what has been lost in the conversation about primaries is that candidates sometimes can matter, maybe less for members of Congress. I think this is a lot more relevant in the, in the presidential context, but that some of these things like experience, judgment, authenticity can be important once in office. But also, it's interesting to me that 
the primaries seem like they could be poised to have these major debates, and that's not happening. It's not happening everywhere. It might just be an artifact of this particular race, because it's clearly happened in some of the other races in this cycle, particularly over the role of Trump. But it's, it's interesting to me that that is just not happening in that context. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, and I do wonder to what extent this is an artifact of the state uh, that these folks are running in, that the nature of politics as it is there. I think to a state like Missouri, which is seeing a pretty contentious primary among the Republican candidates running for uh, Senate, and that at this point, millions of dollars have been spent in negative advertising, tearing each other down. So to one to one extent, I think that there really might be uh, something unique about Wisconsin in the way that they reward candidates who are nice. And I'd love for that kind of culture to exist across the country, I'll say. Uh, that said as well, I, you bring up this idea of candidates continuing to matter. And I think that that is largely true. Whether or not parties are strong, candidates will matter. Uh, and it could be a terrible candidate that loses a very winnable seat for a party that, like, like a Roy Moore. Uh, who should have won in any normal circumstances, but Roy Moore just couldn't be normal. Uh, or, or looking back to the Christine O'Donnells and Todd Akins that have run in previous cycles. The candidates still very much matter. And I'm, I'm curious to see how this works out with a candidate like Herschel Walker in Georgia and whether or not Republicans take back a seat that on paper seems like the kind of seat that they should win, but in practice very well may not because candidates can torpedo their own campaigns. I guess I will point out as, as maybe a final thought on this topic that there is an incentive in our party system, weak parties, strong parties or otherwise, for parties to think about electoral politics and um, even how they govern it, with this overarching question of what unites us and divides them. That, that is a very strong and functional tactic. Uh, and it's why you will often see candidates hyping up or even running their own campaigns in a way that's not that, that doesn't say, here's what I will do. Because a, a statement that says, here's what I will do, might divide your own side if they disagree on how to handle a situation, but instead calling out something that they don't like within some faction of their opposing party, because that will divide their opposition and depress their vote. Uh, it's not necessarily perhaps the ideal way to run politics, but I think that is kind of a natural outcome of a, our large two-party system where you will win not just by maximizing your own votes and by putting forward a positive agenda, but also by uh, depleting your opposition's votes. You, you only need more than them, right? You don't have to get more than a certain number. You just need more than your than your opponent to win. Right. This is, this is, of course, the lesser of two evils strategy of negative partisanship, which seems to be the, the dominant force in our politics and, and one reason why I'm so worried about the two-party system. So a few closing comments, and I want to kind of this question that you raise, uh, Matt, about the kind of what voters are willing to accept and the sort of frustration with the party. So, I mean, one way to view that people are voting in, uh, people are registering as independents is to, is because people genuinely don't like the party's institutions. Another way to understand how people uh, why people are registering as independents is because they're just frustrated with the two-party system and all the divisiveness. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of evidence when you look at what at, at independent voters that they're just really anti-system voters because they feel that neither of the two parties represents them. But I think if there were more parties and different parties could speak to different concerns of voters, I mean, particularly younger voters who tend to be, uh, you know, registered 
as independents at the highest level, like they, they really feel like neither of the two parties is speaking to the concerns that they feel are important. But if you had like a, a, a party that was more focused on issues like the environment and the, the high cost of housing and the, the sort of stagnant, uh, you know, wage economy for a lot of younger voters, I, you know, I think that party would would do very well. So I, I think it's important not to mistake the, the, the rise of independent voters as a kind of distaste for organized parties as much as it's a distaste for the two two parties. Uh, and, you know, so when, when I think about you know, political reform and institutional reform. I mean, I can see the case for saying, okay, look, you know, the parties are not working well. So let's like further cut them out of the process and, you know, create this winnowing two round system in which parties basically play no role other than for candidates to kind of choose which party to affiliate with. But to Julia's point that this just further weakens parties and then creates more frustration with the parties because they're not able to do the things that we want them to do, like organize and structure politics. And we've just created this system of chaos, which then leads to candidates who have celebrity and money to be able to emerge and organize like Donald Trump. I mean, when I look around the world, the countries where parties are weak are very weak democracies. And the countries where parties are strong and organized are strong democracies. So it seems to me it's not just about like, you know, what, what is acceptable in this moment. And, and I you know, say even that Alaska reform barely passed and it only passed because it was tethered to a dark money uh, reform. We'll see what happens in, in Nevada. The question is, shouldn't we rather than just saying, OK, we're just going to accept things as they are, and even if things are falling apart and voters are, are kind of like giving up on party politics and, and organized institutions, we should just lean into that. Or shouldn't we be saying, well, we should think about how democracy can work in the 21st century and that political institutions are really important because without organized institutions, things just become chaos. And when things become chaos, people turn to demagogues and authoritarians. So shouldn't we be trying to think about building up and shouldn't we be supporting pro-party reforms rather than putting parties further outside of the system? And that's that's my last question. No, it's a, and it's a great question. And I think it is helpful like as thinking through this process, not only to think of how things are, but also how how things were, how things could be uh, to expand the way that we we address the issue. And I guess I am curious, and maybe you know, I, I will say I'm not an international relations or, or or comparative politics expert to know the the strength of democracy and the impact that that might have on celebrity candidates. But it does stick out to me that U.S. history is full of celebrity candidates gaining power. Uh, you know, we had a a Hollywood actor become president in the 80s. Uh, yeah, but Matt, I mean, he was governor of California, so he wasn't like a political novice. No, I but, mean, he, well, I mean, but he also was I mean, a celebrity who became governor. Sure, I, I guess I'll, sure. I'll note as well that we, in some of our most authoritarian times as a country, uh, that those have existed in the old strong party system as well. You know, Woodrow Wilson. Well, what, what, do you, what do you mean? Woodrow Will, uh, wait, you're calling Woodrow Wilson an authoritarian? Sure. I mean, why not? I mean, he did jail political dissidents at the time and lamented that the Constitution didn't grant the presidency enough power and wished that the entire well, thing could be remade. But well, OK. And he was a big old racist and resegregated the executive racist. branch. But um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if he but he but were, were, was the Democratic Party particularly strong then? I don't think that was a period of strong 
Basically. They also, I mean, it's surprising that they it even was would a period have of week of week parties. I would say, uh, well, on the Republican side in particular, since Wilson really only won because uh, Teddy Roosevelt splintered off against Taft and prevented his reelection. But uh, I, I share all of this to say that I, I think largely your thesis sounds. I haven't investigated myself, but it sounds like there's something there. The idea that as parties get weak, the power of the individual candidate might grow, and that could encourage populism and demagoguery, and to some extent, then authoritarianism as that figure becomes the savior for the country. And I would be worried about that potential as well. And and so with that in mind, you know, again, I, I would be encouraged to see parties behave in a way where they were capable of executing their own self-interest. We're just, I guess... Uh, I don't see reforms that move us there that are on the table at the moment. Well, I, I mean, you know, it's a matter of what's on the table is what we decide is on the table. I, I mean, I, I think fusion balloting, proportional representation are, are starting to be on the table. And those are pro those are reforms that build parties, whereas the, the kind of top five, you know, blanket primary are reforms that further winnow away at parties. But, you know, th- this is an ongoing conversation. And, you know, thank you, Matthew, for, you know, challenging us and stimulating us and uh, coming on Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.